All right, let's open in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time to gather together to worship you, to fellowship, to be encouraged, and to encourage one another. Uh, we pray that you would uh, just give us insight and wisdom through the sermon. We pray that you would give it clarity, and we pray that you would help us to think through these things correctly. And we pray that you'd give us wisdom. And we thank you for your grace. Amen. So today we're continuing our current series called How to Be Legalistic. Again, the, the goal isn't to become legalistic, but to know how to avoid becoming legalistic. Um, the term legalism has become a bit of a catch-all term for almost any type of having an unhealthy relationship with the law. So in this series, we're actually addressing four different types of problems that could each be considered legalism. And those four issues are believing that the law will justify you, believing that separation will sanctify you, holding to standards that God doesn't command, and caring about God's commands more than God does. Now, unfortunately, legalism has the tendency to creep into our thoughts and attitudes, often in small and subtle ways, and often without us noticing. So the goal of this series is to help you identify legalism in your own thoughts and attitudes and to help you overcome it. So today we are doing part two of holding to standards that God doesn't command. When I say holding to standards that God doesn't command, I'm talking about when a person thinks that something is morally forbidden, even though God didn't forbid it, or if they think that something is morally required, even though God didn't command it. So why is that that big of an issue? Is that even that bad of a thing? Aren't more rules more helpful or more safe? Well, no. Not when, not when you consider them moral standards and they don't come from God. So last week we talked about how extra-biblical standards are harmful, or how they can be harmful, and today we're going to review that a bit. We mentioned four ways of how extra-biblical standards, or standards that don't come from the Bible, can be harmful. The first one is that they can hinder your testimony. You know, most unbelievers incorrectly have the idea that if they were to become a Christian, they would no longer be able to have fun in life. And that's an incorrect idea, but that's a temptation they face. But when we add rules to God's rules and we claim that they're from him when we're mistaken and they're actually not, we're making that temptation even worse for them. And that's a real problem. That's a very serious thing. Again, let's look at Matthew 18, verse 7. Woe to the world for its temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. You don't want to be a cause for unbelievers to have even more temptation to reject Christ. And when we're careless about whether or not the moral standards that we hold to are actually from God's word, and we don't really do our due diligence to make sure of that, then we might be being a stumbling block to people. It's unloving. So that's the first way that extra-biblical standards can be harmful. The second way is that they can hinder unity. You know, Paul wrote in Romans and in 1 Corinthians about cases where one believer thinks one thing's a sin and another believer thinks it's not a sin, and we're not going to go into detail into that right now, but it creates an opportunity for disunity. Anytime there's a disagreement about what God's will is, it creates an opportunity for disunity. So the better each of us knows God's will or the more diligent we are to make sure we know God's will and to make sure that we're not holding to extra-biblical standards, the less opportunities for disunity 
that we'll have. You know, the, and the third way that extra biblical standards can be harmful is they can keep you or others from missing some of God's blessings. There's a number of things in creation uh, that God created for us to enjoy and to enjoy with thankfulness. But sometimes extra biblical standards cause us to see something that God made for our well-being as sinful. And the last reason that extra biblical standards can be harmful is, and the most significant reason is that they can lead you away from the heart of God. Let's look at Mark 7, verses 5 through 7. And the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. When we let our hearts become preoccupied with standards that don't come from God, standards that God doesn't care about, that's leading our hearts farther away from him. God wants us to care about the things that he cares about and to be focused on the priorities that he's focused on. And when we start to focus on moral priorities that aren't his, that is inevitably leading our hearts away from his heart. We need to have his priorities, not our own. Let's look at Matthew 23, verses 23 through 24. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites? For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Blind guides, you strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Jesus was rebuking the Pharisees uh, because they had priorities that weren't God's priorities. They weren't focused on justice and mercy and faith. They had let little things become their main priorities, and it had drawn their hearts away from God's heart. When our hearts become preoccupied with standards that aren't from God, it leads our hearts away from him because it causes us to be less like him. So those are four reasons why extra-biblical standards can be harmful. We need to care whether or not... We, we need to try to avoid them. They're worth avoiding. Extra-biblical standards are bad. They're not neutral. They're bad. So determining or figuring out whether or not you have any extra-biblical standards, and if so, which of your moral standards are extra-biblical and which ones aren't, can be kind of difficult. No one, or almost no one, purposefully holds to an extra-biblical standard. The Pharisees thought that they were right. If they thought that they were wrong, they would have changed their minds. Everyone always thinks they're right. Um, So in order to help us try to evaluate or avoid extra-biblical standards, I'm going to mention seven types of thinking that can lead to extra-biblical standards. And last week we mentioned four of them, and I'll just briefly mention those again as a review. So the first one we talked about is assigning moral authority to sources other than the scriptures. 
If God has any standard that he wants all humans to follow, it's in the scriptures. God might give you personal um, commands that are just for you, like marry this person or move to this city, but those aren't for everyone. Those are for you. If anything is God's moral standard for everyone, then it's in the Bible, period. So when we start to derive moral standards that aren't from the Bible, we're going to have wrong moral standards. The second one we talked about is what I call having a a whitelist morality assumption. Um, I'm borrowing that term from computer networking. Um, When you're trying to keep your employees in an organization from going to certain websites, there's two ways to do it. You can make a whitelist or a blacklist. And if you have a whitelist, then it means all the employees in that company can only go to websites that are on that list. And if you have a blacklist, you put websites on that list, and it means employees can go to any website they want except for the websites on the blacklist. And this is kind of an assumption that we bring to the Bible. The Bible doesn't explicitly say which one of these views is the correct view of morality, but the Bible postulates the assumption of whiteless, of uh, blacklist morality. The Bible postulates the assumption that unless the Bible explicitly says it's forbidden, then it's allowed. That assumption is throughout the Bible from beginning to end. And uh, if you'd like to hear more about that, you can check out last week's sermon on our website. The third type of thinking or underlying reason that can lead to extra-biblical standards is not knowing the Bible. There's people everywhere trying to push extra-biblical standards onto you. Uh, A lot of people don't get their sense of morality or their ideas about morality from the Bible. So throughout society, there's people who are trying to push extra-biblical standards onto you. And in order to know which ones are biblical and which ones aren't, you have to have read the Bible. And in reality, you probably have to have read it multiple times in order to confidently and reasonably be able to say, I know the Bible doesn't say that. I'd remember it if it did. If you only read the Bible once, you might forget things that are in it. And if you've never read it at all, you don't know what the Bible doesn't say. So not knowing the Bible can lead to extra-biblical standards. Every Christian should have as their goal, beyond just reading the Bible regularly, to get to the point where they've read the entire Bible multiple times. And the last type of thinking that can lead to extra-biblical standards that we talked about is antinomianism, or the idea that the Old Testament law has no moral relevance today. We examined from Jesus' teachings how that's not true. We don't have to keep it to be righteous before God, but it still has moral relevance today. And we looked at how the reason that can lead people to extra-biblical standards is because humans being made in the image of God are inherently moral creatures. So if we don't have a sense of law that comes from God, we'll create our own laws because it's part of our design to look for laws to follow. Even the people who claim to follow no laws, they still follow laws. So those are the first four types of thinking that can lead to extra-biblical standards, and today we're going to look at three more. The first one we're going to look at is dualism. 
Now, when I say dualism, I'm referring to the idea that everything is always good or always bad. That's an unbiblical idea. That's an incorrect idea. And I'll explain what I mean by that. In reality, almost nothing is always good or always bad. There are things that are always good or always bad. Sin is always bad. Loving God is always good. But in reality, most practical everyday things are not always good and not always bad. Almost everything is fine in certain contexts or proportions, but wrong in other contexts or proportions. And we, we even see that just in the natural, with physical things. Water is good for you. Water is fine. It's not bad for you. Most of the time, two liters of water a day is pretty good for you. But if people start, if a person drinks, say, 10 to 15 liters of water a day, multiple days in a row, they can actually get what's called water poisoning, where your kidneys can't process all the water you're taking in. And if you were to, in theory, drink enough water, it could kill you. Water isn't always good, and it's not always bad. I'll give a, a second example. Sunshine. Sunshine is great. It makes you happy. It gives you vitamin D. But for people who are as white as I am, sunshine isn't always good. <laughs> Just like water poisoning is a thing, as I found out a few years ago, Sun poisoning is a thing. If you get sunburnt enough, you can actually get a fever from it. You can get physically ill. And skin cancer is also real. So sunshine is good, but not always. But it's also not always bad. Depends on context and proportion. And most things in life, whether they're good or bad, depend on context and proportion. And if we reduce um, everything to being always good or always bad, we will quite likely end up with some extra biblical standards. But let's talk about how this idea that everything is always good or always bad is unbiblical. Uh, it is, the Bible does not agree with that idea. Let's look at Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Biblically speaking, even things that, you know, generally are really bad like killing people, aren't always bad. Let's look at Genesis 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Generally, 
killing people is pretty bad, but it's not always bad. Sometimes there is a time to kill, like in war or in the justice system. And even things that, generally speaking, are always good can sometimes be bad, like giving money to ministry. Let's look at Mark 7, verses 9 through 11. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you don't allow him to do anything. Or the Pharisees wouldn't allow them to help their parents. So Jesus is giving an example of, you know, people who are giving money to God to the neglect of taking care of their parents, who are, you know, it's implied by the theoretical situation in old age. And Jesus is rebuking them for this. Even things that, generally speaking, are always good, like giving to ministry or giving to the poor, can be bad. In reality, almost nothing is always good or always bad. Most things can be good sometimes or bad other times, and it usually comes down to context, proportion, or even motive, or some mix of those things. Just to drive this home even further, I'm going to go through a list of things that, uh, biblical examples of things that aren't always good and aren't always bad. I should have made a PowerPoint for this slide, but I forgot to. But it's in your handout. There's a lot of things that aren't always good and aren't always bad. Uh, Let's talk at one there's a lot of misconception about. Alcohol. Alcohol is not always bad. Let's look at Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. So we see clearly in the psalm that God created wine to make man's heart glad. He made it for that purpose, and that was his intent, and that's good. Let's also look at 1 Timothy 5, verse 23. Paul talking to Timothy, No longer drink water only, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and frequent ailments. So we see another context in where wine can be good. But that doesn't mean wine is always good. Wine can be bad. Alcohol can be bad. Let's look at Ephesians 5, verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So again, you know, most things in life, including alcohol, aren't always bad or always good. It comes down to context and proportion. Let's also look at food. Let's look at Proverbs 24, verse 13. My son, eat honey, for it is good, and the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. Food is good, but food's not always good. Let's look at Proverbs 25, verse 16. If you have found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it. So food is good in some contexts and proportions, but not necessarily good in other contexts or proportions. 
food isn't always good or always bad. This list is, uh, it's somewhat of a long list. Rest, rest isn't always good or always bad. Let's look at how rest isn't always bad. Hopefully most of us don't think rest is always bad. (laughs) But rest is good. Let's look at Psalm 127 verse two. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For God gives his beloved sleep. But sleep isn't always good. Let's look at Proverbs 20, verse 13. Love not sleep, lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes and you will have plenty of bread. When he says open your eyes and you'll have plenty of bread, he's basically saying wake up and work and then you'll have money. So rest is good in some contexts and in some proportions, in bad and other contexts and other proportions. You know, the same is true for sex. Sadly, sometimes people get the, the sentiment or the attitude that sex is bad or that sex is wrong. And sex isn't always good. It has to be in marriage. You know, context matters. Sex has to be in marriage. And even if you are married... There's time and place. You can't have sex anytime, anywhere with your spouse. You could get arrested. (laughs) But sex isn't always bad. God made sex good, and he wants married couples to enjoy it and enjoy it regularly. Let's look at Proverbs 5, verses 18 and 19. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. So sex isn't always good, and sex isn't always bad. Let's keep going. Spending money on your own pleasure, or spending money on your own enjoyment. Let's look at how that's not always good. Let's look at James 4, verse 3. You ask, and you do not receive, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. But at the same time, spending money on your own enjoyment is not always bad. Let's look at 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them to not be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So Paul is saying it's okay for those who are rich, who have riches, to enjoy their wealth, because God provides us with all things to enjoy. So just like most everything else, spending money on your own enjoyment is not always good and it's not always bad. It comes down to context and proportion and maybe motive. Another thing that's not always good or not always bad, caring how you look. You know, sometimes that can be vanity. Sometimes the reason we care how we look is because we just want everyone to to think well of us and we're slightly self-absorbed about it. But caring how you look isn't always bad because, you know, you need to have a job. And if you really let go of how you look, you might not keep a job. But let's look at two more verses. Let's look at two passages of Scripture that talk about um, spending time and money on how you look. Let's look at 1 Timothy 2, verse 9. Verse 9. 
Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire. But So, you know, spending money on how you look or having fancy clothes isn't always good. But guess what? It's not always bad. Let's look at Proverbs 31, verses 10 and 22. We'll look at verse 10 just for context. So, you know, the second, well, the second half, even though it's not half, of Proverbs 31 is about an excellent wife, and we see that in verse 10. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. And then it says in verse 22, after talking about uh, how diligent she is, she makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Fine linen and purple, purple was a royal, considered a royal color. That means fancy clothes. The excellent wife, because she's diligent and works hard, has fancy clothes. So we see that caring how you look and putting time and effort into it isn't always good, but it's also not always bad. Because putting time and effort and money into how you look, like almost everything in life, whether or not it's good or bad, comes down to context, proportion, and maybe motive. Another thing that's not always good, but not always bad, saying good things about yourself. Let's look at Proverbs 27, verse 2. Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. Let's also look at... um, So, you know, saying good things about yourself isn't always good. It might be out of pride that you're doing it. Or you might, um, if you do it too much, it might get on other people's nerves. But saying good things about yourself isn't always bad. Let's look at um, Numbers 12, verse 3. Now, the man Moses was very meek, very humble, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Do you know who wrote that? Moses did. Moses wrote that inspired by the Holy Spirit to write that. So Moses had some good things to say about himself. And not only did he have some good things to say about himself, but while saying them, he was still the most humble person on earth in his day. So again, as with almost everything in life, Saying good things about yourself isn't always good, but it's also not always bad. Another thing that's not always good or not always bad, lying. Let's look at Colossians 3 verse 9. Lying isn't always good. A lot of times it's probably not. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self and its practices. But also, lying isn't always bad. Let's look at Exodus 1, 15 through 21. Then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, gave this order to the Hebrew midwives, Sifra and Puha. When you help the Hebrew women as they give birth, watch as they deliver. If the baby is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. But because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders. They allowed the boys to live too. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives. Why have you done this, he demanded. Why have you allowed the boys to live? 
The Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, the midwives replied. They are more vigorous and have their babies so quickly that we can't get there in time. By the way, they lied about that. (laughs) So God was good to the midwives, and the Israelites continued to multiply, growing more and more powerful. And because the midwives feared God by lying, he gave them and their fa- he gave them families of their own. So even as something that you'd think is always bad, like lying, is not always good and not always bad. I hope this list makes it clear. And, you know, we don't have time to go through everything. We could be here all day. But most things in life aren't always good or always bad. Most things are sometimes good and sometimes bad, and it usually comes down to context, proportion, and maybe motive, or some mix of those things. So how does dualism cause extra-biblical standards? Uh, Well, as we've seen... The Bible paints a clear picture if you look, if you, in the Bible, biblically speaking, most things aren't always good or always bad. But if we expect things to be always good or always bad, we're going to miss the biblical morality, the biblical realities. We're going to make assumptions that aren't true. We're going to see something being bad and we're going to assume it's always bad. Or we'll see something being good and we'll assume it's always good. We need to not have the expectation that most things are going to be always good or always bad. Because if we have that expectation, it's going to lead us to develop extra biblical standards. It's going to lead us to assume things. But I also wanted to mention, why do people buy into dualism? Why is dualism a temptation? Well, the biggest reason that it's tempting is because accepting the reality that life is complicated and that biblical morality is complicated is kind of painful. It's kind of an annoying truth to have to accept. Life is complicated, and that means it takes a lot of wisdom, and that reality isn't pleasant. The idea that morality is complicated is difficult to accept, and that's because it means that you're going to have to work hard and be diligent in order to sort through what's right and what's not. And it also means that you might make mistakes. But the idea that most of life is black and white is a childish idea. And if you want to think like an adult, if you want to think biblically, you need to get past the idea that most of life is black and white. And when I say black and white, when I say life in biblical morality isn't black and white, I don't mean that biblical morality is subjective or subject to people's opinions. Biblical morality is objective. It's not determined by what humans think of it. But it's also not simple. It's complex. That's what I mean when I say biblical morality isn't black and white. It's not simple. It's complex. It takes wisdom. It takes diligence. But that that doesn't mean you can't understand it. Anyone can understand it. You know, it says in Psalm 119, or I think Psalm 119, God's word makes the simple wise. Anyone can understand it, but it's going to take work. 
having a good grasp of biblical morality is going to take work. You're going to have to study. You're going to have to think through things. You're going to have to ask yourself difficult questions, sometimes painful questions. And you're going to have to ask God for wisdom. But this should be our expectation. The Bible teaches us to have this expectation that knowing his will is going to take work. Let's look at Joshua 1 verse verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Let's also look at 2 Timothy 2 verse 7. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So we are given the expectation in the scripture that in order to know God's will, we're going to have to study it regularly and not just read it, but think through it. We're going to have to think about it. We're going to have to do some hard thinking sometimes. Thinking is biblical. And it's something, thinking through difficult topics is something every Christian has to do. But God will give us wisdom if we seek him for wisdom. So how do we overcome um, extra-biblical expectations that come from dualism? I would say there's two things we have to do if we want to avoid having extra-biblical expectations because of dualism. The first one, you have to learn to expect that most things in life aren't going to be always good or always bad. You, You need to just expect that. Most things aren't going to be always good or always bad. And expecting life to be complex can go a long ways in helping you avoid the extra-biblical standards that come from assuming that if something's bad, it's always bad. The second thing that will be helpful is to, to learn to interpret Scripture in the context of the Bible as a whole. So we just saw in a number of the examples we looked at that there are many passages in the Bible that need to be interpreted in the light of and in the context of other passages in order to be able to see the biblical reality. You need to interpret Scripture in the context of the Bible as a whole. Because Scripture interprets Scripture. And if we don't learn to do that, we're going to develop a lot of misinterpretations. So dualism. Dualism can lead to extra-biblical standards and we should reject it. The next thing that can lead to extra-biblical standards is lack of critical thinking. So every person has a whole lot of thoughts in their head. Some of them come from themselves, some of them come from others, uh, but no matter where a thought originates, you have to learn to analyze it critically. Every single human to ever exist has unreasonable thoughts enter their head, probably on a daily basis. And in order to pick out the good thoughts and reject the bad thoughts, you need to develop the habit of critically analyzing your own thoughts. And you need to do so diligently. That needs to become a habit you do diligently. So how does lack of critical thinking lead to extra-biblical standards? Where it can lead to extra-biblical standards, because out of all the incorrect ideas that pop into our heads, 
uh, oftentimes, or we'll sometimes get incorrect ideas about God's will. Every Christian in their life is going to have incorrect ideas about God's will. And if we want to keep those ideas from actually developing into extra-biblical standards, we need to develop the habit of critically examining our thoughts. Critically examining our own thoughts is a habit everyone should develop anyways. Let's look at Proverbs 14, verse 15. You need this habit in every area of life. Proverbs 14, verse 15. The naive believes everything, but the sensible person considers his steps. Another way to look at that is the naive person simply agrees with every thought that pops into their head. But the wise person questions whether or not what they think is correct. Questioning whether or not what you think is correct is how you consider your steps. So as we see in the book of Proverbs, the, the naive person simply agrees with every thought that pops into their head, but the wise person questions whether or not what they think is correct. But this is something you have to train yourself to do. And it takes diligence. It takes discipline. It's not always fun. If you're going to learn to develop the habit of critically analyzing your own thoughts, it's going to take in being intentional and it's going to take discipline. So how do you start developing that habit? Well, you, in order to start to critically analyze your own thoughts, you basically have to have a conversation with yourself where you say, I think such and such but how do I know that that idea is correct? This is my idea, but how do I know it's correct? You ask yourself that question. Then you come up with an answer for that question, or you try to come up with an answer. And if you think it's a good answer, if you find it convincing, then go ahead and keep thinking that idea. But if you can't come up with a good answer, then stop thinking that idea. If you've never done this before, if you haven't practiced this much, then take some time and think about the, the moral standards that you hold to and ask yourself, does this really come from the Bible? What passages teach this? And if you can come up with a good answer, great. But if you can't come up with a good answer, you should probably stop thinking it. And again, this might be unpleasant sometimes because you might end up having to change a lot of your thinking. But good thinking takes discipline. So lack of critical thinking can lead to extra-biblical expectations, and we need to avoid it. We need to learn to think critically. The last thing I would say can lead to extra-biblical expectations is fear of missing God's will, or an out-of-proportion fear of missing God's will. So when I say fear of missing God's will, I mean that a the idea that a person holds to a moral standard, not because it's clearly biblical, but because they think it might be biblical and they're afraid to get it wrong. And this is an understandable struggle. In reality, in some sense, you can't know with 100% absolute certainty that anything you think is correct. And that includes the moral standards you hold to. That includes all of your interpretations of the Bible. 
Whenever we believe anything, we're, we're placing a bet. We're taking a risk. We're saying, I think this is correct because I have X, Y, Z reasons to think it's correct. But in theory, you could be wrong about anything because no one ever knows when they're wrong. And so how that affects the moral standards we hold to is that whenever you believe something is okay to do, whenever you believe something's biblically allowed, you're risking being wrong about that. And therefore, odds are, you're risking committing sin out of ignorance by believing anything's, by believing that a given thing is okay to do. Whenever you believe that anything is okay, you're, risk, you're taking a risk. And some people have a higher or lower risk tolerance than others when it comes to this, as in every area. And I would say that, biblically speaking, it's possible to have too high of a moral risk tolerance, and it's also possible to have too low of a moral risk tolerance. Let me give some examples. If something, in your estimation, has a 90% chance of being sinful, but you're not sure whether it's sinful or not, and you're going to do it anyways just because there's a 10% chance that it might not be sinful, and you've got, other than that, no reason to do it, then that, that shows that your heart really doesn't take obedience to God very seriously. That's an issue. That's too high of a moral risk tolerance. But it's also possible to have too low of a moral risk tolerance. If you're not sure whether, if you think some, if you're pretty sure that a certain thing isn't a sin, but there's some microscopic chance that it is a sin, and because of that microscopic chance, you think that no one should ever do it, that's too low of a moral risk tolerance. And that low moral risk tolerance is going to lead to extra biblical standards. Because in reality, everything has at least a microscopic chance of being wrong. Every moral standard you hold to or choose to not hold to, you have a microscopic chance of being wrong about that, at least. But that's how life works. Whether or not we've thought about this before, that's how life works. Every single day of your life is filled with very small risks everywhere. Odds are you chose to get in a car to get here, and there was a microscopic chance that you wouldn't get here and that you would have died in a car accident. But you took that risk, and it worked out. You're all here. It wasn't wrong that you took that risk. But life is always filled with small risks everywhere. And that's just life. So if a person has too low of a moral risk tolerance, it'll lead to extra biblical standards because in theory, there's always a chance that any given thing could lead to sin. And if you have too low of a moral risk tolerance, you're going to start saying, I'm not going to do this because it could be sin. I'm not going to do that because it could be sin. And the lower the moral risk tolerance, once it gets too low, the more extra biblical standards a person will develop. You know, a person might choose to cover every part of their body except their eyes because there's some chance that if they go out in public, someone will lust after them. Or they might take it further and they might not even go out in public. Because honestly, whenever you go out in public, there is some chance someone will lust after you. A person might not let their kids watch any TV ever because there's, there is always at least a microscopic chance that it'll lead them into some sin. 
Life is filled with small risks everywhere, and you need to realize that, and you need to accept that, and you need to realize that taking risks is correct. Not all risks, but some risks. There's a number of risks that are worth taking. And after a person's moral risk tolerance gets to a certain point, the lower it gets after that, the more extra-biblical standards they're going to come up with. There was a, a city I lived in in Peru, and there was a seminary there that actually had benches with a side for a man and a side for a woman, and they had to have a certain amount of space in between them. And that was just the rule of the seminary. Now, that's kind of ridiculous, but that comes from having too low of a moral risk tolerance. Because in theory, with whenever a man and woman are in physical proximity of each other, there is at least a microscopic chance that something sinful will happen. but you don't want to have too low of a moral risk tolerance. It'll lead to extra-biblical standards, like the idea that you can't let a man and a woman sit six inches from each other. It has to be 12 inches. That's absurd. <laughs> but how do you overcome that? If, how does a person overcome having too low of a moral risk tolerance? And how does a person avoid having too low of a moral risk tolerance? Well, I would say there's two things you need to realize in order to overcome or avoid having too low of a moral risk tolerance. The first one is that you need to realize that God doesn't want us to be overly afraid of committing sins out of ignorance. God wants us to be level-headed, and he wants us to see things for how they are, because God is a God of truth. God never causes us to grow by telling us lies. He helps us to grow by telling us the truth. God wants us to think accurately about life. And God tells us that sins out of ignorance are less severe than normal sins. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't have to do any due diligence to avoid them, but it means you shouldn't be overly afraid of them. You shouldn't be freaked out about them. You shouldn't be anxious about it. Let's look at Luke 12, verses 46 through 48. The master of that servant will come on a day where he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did, did not know and deserved what did a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. And from him who is entrusted much, they will demand all the more. So this is a parable. Um, this is a parable Christ is giving about you know, him leaving and coming back, and there's a master who leaves and comes back, and he entrusts his servants to do things. But at the end of the parable, he gives an example of two servants, one who knew what his master wanted and didn't do it, and he gets a severe beating. And another servant who, for one reason or another, was not aware of what his master wanted, and he ended up doing something his master didn't want. But he gets a light beating. Because sin out of ignorance is less severe than... Uh, intentional sin. And that, that doesn't mean we don't have to be diligent to seek God's will, but it means we shouldn't be anxious about committing sins out of ignorance. Because in theory, since you can't guarantee that you're right about anything, it's possible that anything you're doing could be a sin out of ignorance. Let's also look at Proverbs 24, verse 12. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the hearts perceive it? Does not he who keeps 
watch over your soul, know it? And will he not repay a man according to his work? So we also see here, God takes into account uh, when a person sins, was this an intentional sin or did they just not know uh, what God's will was? In the fact, this means we don't have to be anxious about committing sins out of ignorance. Again, we should be diligent to make sure we do know God's will, but we shouldn't be anxious about the possibility of committing sins out of ignorance. Another reason we don't have to be anxious about it is not just because God says it's less severe than intentional sin, but God promises to reveal his will to those who seek it. Let's look at James 1 verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Let's also look at Isaiah 30, verses 20 through 22. And though the Lord give you uh, the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher, and your ears shall hear a word from behind you, saying, this is the way, walk in it, when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. Then you will defire your carved idols overlaid with silver and gold and uh, your gold-plated images, and you will scatter them as unclean things, and you will say to them, be gone. So God is plenty capable of correcting you when you're wrong about something. Now, we still need to seek his will. That doesn't mean we don't need to seek to find out what his will is, but it does mean that you don't need to be anxious about accidentally missing it. it does, you can afford to have a moral risk tolerance. You should have a moral risk tolerance, because if you don't have any, you'll just end up staying home doing nothing in order to avoid sin. And then you'll probably still sin, and you'll, not all, you'll have committed the sin of doing nothing. And that's the second thing we have to realize, is that there's risk either way. For the person who stays home in order to avoid sin, they might avoid sins they'd commit while they're out, but staying home and doing nothing is a sin in and of itself. There's risk either way. There's risk in both directions. Whether you choose to believe something is right or something is wrong, both of them are risks. When you um, say that something's, when you choose to hold something as a standard because you're afraid you might miss God's will if you don't, you're risking developing an unbiblical standard, an extra biblical standard. And developing extra biblical standards is unloving. Let's also look at Ecclesiastes 7, verse 16. Do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? So excessive means more than required. So being more righteous than required, the way I interpret this, means following extra biblical standards, following standards that don't come from God. Because if a person develops too many extra biblical standards, they can literally ruin themselves from it. They can become ineffective. Don't ruin yourself by starting to follow all kinds of un on extra-biblical standards. So there's risk either way. Whether you're thinking of considering something right or considering something wrong, they're both risks. So those are two things we need to do in order to avoid having too low of a moral risk tolerance. We need to realize that God doesn't want us to be anxious about the prospect of committing sins out of ignorance because he gives mercy for it and because he'll reveal his will to those who seek it. 
and because either way is a risk. So that is the, the seventh and last type of thinking that I'm going to mention that can lead to extra biblical standards. So we should try to avoid you know, these ways of thinking. Let's get to our conclusion. In conclusion, I'm going to say this at the end of every sermon in the series. Legalism is constantly trying to sneak into our thoughts and attitudes in small and subtle ways. And we have to be on guard for it. We have to be on the lookout for it. Because no one is knowingly legalistic. No one gets out of bed and says, I'm going to be legalistic today. The only people who are legalistic are people who aren't aware that they're being legalistic. But legalism is a problem that anyone can fall into, typically in small and subtle ways that we don't perceive, which means we have to be on the lookout for it. The second thing I want to say in my conclusion is that Christians need to learn to think critically. Remember what Proverbs says, the naive person believes everything. The naive person agrees with all his own thoughts without questioning them. Christians need to learn to think critically. And if we don't learn to think critically, we won't do very well at interpreting God's word. The last thing I would say in my conclusion is that we need to reject dualism. Dualism, or the idea that everything is either always right or always wrong, or even the idea that most things are always right or always wrong, is an unbiblical and unsafe idea. Most practical day-to-day things that you're going to run into are right in some contexts and proportions and wrong in other contexts and proportions. Almost nothing is always right or always wrong, in practice at least. So let's close in prayer and then we'll have our communion meditation. Dear Lord, we thank you that you give us wisdom. We thank you uh, that you have grace for us and you desire to equip us and that you have mercy for us when we make mistakes, Lord. We thank you that you empower us and you give us mercy and we thank you that you're patient. We pray that you'd help us to be diligent, to know your will accurately and precisely, uh, to not have less moral standards than we should, but to not have more more moral standards than we should. We pray that we would be diligent and that you would empower us for that. We pray that you'd give us wisdom to know your will well. We thank you for your grace and amen. Today's communion meditation is called Jesus Protects His People. So the Bible, I want to say this, the Bible doesn't teach that if someone falls away from the faith, they're still saved. The Bible does not teach that, even though that's kind of a common idea today. The Bible doesn't teach that if someone falls away from the faith, they're still saved. It teaches something similar to that, but slightly different. What the Bible does teach is that if someone is truly saved, if someone is born again, then God won't allow them to truly fall away from the faith or to fall away and to turn away in such a way where they don't turn back. Let's look at John 6, 37 through 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should not lose, or that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Let's also look at 1 John 5, verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but, whoever, but he who was born of God, that is Jesus, protects him, and the evil one does not touch him.
Jesus protects all his people, and Jesus is perfectly capable of keeping us from stumbling in spite of how flawed we are. So let's praise him, the author and perfecter of our faith, as we come to the table.